Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, a new book connects the past and present day labor movements to building a stronger democracy. And through the stories of union organizers, we'll meet one of them and one of the co-authors. Also, gun ownership among black Americans is up 14 percent from six years ago. And get this, especially among black women. So all those conversations coming up. But first this, some parents in the Cobb County School District are condemning a new elementary school logo. The district unveiled the new logo Tuesday for Eastside Elementary featuring the school's mascot and eagle. But the design evokes a symbol used by the Nazi party and still by neo-Nazis today. The school's logo also shows an eagle with its wings spread while holding a circle with the school's initials, stylized in a font also resembling a swastika. Dove Wilker, the director of the American Jewish Committee Atlanta region, issued a statement following this new logo saying, quote, it is troubling that nobody in the Cobb County schools recognize why this logo would be problematic, especially for a school located across the street from a synagogue. The schools should do more than review the logo. It must be discarded immediately, close quote. Now, Wilker also cited previous anti-Semitic incidents in the district, including a high school bathroom that was vandalized with swastikas last year. As of our time, Eastside Elementary Principal Maria Clark said in an email to parents, quote, we will immediately reviewing the logos to determine needed changes, close quote. In other news, Georgia U.S. Representative Jody Heiss is set to testify today before Fulton County Special Grand Jury. It's investigating whether former President Donald Trump illegally tried to interfere in Georgia's 2020 election results. But as we hear from Susanna Capaluto, the Republican from Monroe is trying to move the matter to federal court. In a court filing, Jody Heiss's lawyer argues that since he is a U.S. congressman, a federal court should hold the hearing instead of a Fulton County judge. The special grand jury is looking into whether Trump and his allies committed crimes as they tried to overturn his election loss in Georgia. Heiss was one of several GOP lawmakers at a White House meeting in December 2020 in which Trump allies talked about various ways to overturn Joe Biden's win. One strategy discussed was to appoint an alternate slate of electors that would declare Trump the winner in Georgia. Susanna Capaluto, WABE News. Let's talk health now. COVID-19 subvariants are spreading fast in Fulton County. The Atlanta-based CDC has placed Fulton at the high level of COVID-19 community spread. That's for the Omicron subvariants BA4 and BA5. The CDC, as usual, is recommending Fulton residents wear masks indoors, get tested if symptomatic, and stay up to date with COVID vaccinations. A federal judge is also considering the future of Georgia's ban on handing out food and water to voters waiting in line. WABE politics reporter Raul Bali was in court yesterday as both sides made their case. A coalition of civil rights, voting rights, and other groups are hoping a federal judge will pause the ban that was part of Senate Bill 202. 
last year's overhaul of elections and voting in Georgia. Their lawyers argue that black voters are disproportionately affected by long voting lines. Also, that the ban limits the First Amendment by not allowing people to encourage voters to stay in line. Lawyers representing the state of Georgia and their witnesses say the ability of people to get close to a polling location with food and water to engage voters causes a circus-like atmosphere and the perception of election integrity issues. Also, that it's a distraction for election workers. With Election Day less than four months away, lawyers arguing for the state of Georgia also said it's too late to make changes, something dismissed by the other side as they cited examples of last-second changes in other elections. Raul Bally, WABE News. And finally. I grew up uh, maybe seven blocks from here. So I was just sitting there thinking how much time I've actually spent in this gym. When I was a young kid, before I started to attend Howard, we used to sneak in here. <laughs> we used to sneak in here and play basketball on the weekends in the summer. That is Walter Clyde Frazier Jr. reliving those moments while attending his old school. The NBA legend was in town today along with representatives from the New York Knicks and others as for the dedication of the David T. Howard Court to be named in his in his honor, what is now the David T. Howard Middle School. Well, guess what? Now it's the Walt Clyde Frazier Court Gym Gym on the Middle School's campus. And that is all right. This is Closer Look. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Let's take a little bit of a history lesson. The year is 1866. Now, the National Labor Union becomes the first organization acting as a coalition to embody American unions. And basically, it's the first attempt to create a national labor group in the U.S. And of course, since then, we know labor unions have been key in terms of allowing workers the power to negotiate for more favorable work environments and various other benefits through collective bargaining. Well, there's a new book that's connecting the past and present day of the labor movements to building a stronger democracy. And it's doing this through the stories of union organizers as well. It's called The Future We Need, Organizing for a Better Democracy in the 21st Century. And it's co-authored by labor experts Erica Smiley and Sarita Gupta. And one of the labor organizers and activists featured in the book is Sangione Butler. And I'm joined now by Sangione Butler and one of the authors, Erica Smiley. Welcome to you both. I appreciate you taking the time. Glad to be here. Ms. Butler, I'd like to start with you because in the, the chapter that details your work and it reads, I'm going to quote it here, it reads, quote, I realized then that I had a calling in my life and serious work to do that would involve fighting for people who were disenfranchised, poor and of color, and I knew it would be dangerous work, close quote. And I want you to tell our listeners 
I want you to make that connection between that moment and how it involves Dr. King. Yeah, uh, just being out in the field, especially in the South, the, the word union is, people fear that word. And so being able to reflect that day at the Lorraine Motel and looking at all the exhibits and just realizing how deep the civil rights movement was and that Dr. King gave his life. He sacrificed his life coming to Memphis for workers who were the sanitized, the mm -hmm. sanitation workers who had the campaign, I am a man. Mm -hmm. So being out in the field and, and looking at workers of color, especially women being exploited, low wages, uh, having children, having to force to, you know, work unscheduled overtime, not being allowed to use the phone to try to get an alternative to get somebody to pick up their children or having their children left at home uh, for long hours. It just really brought those two worlds for me together about even if it was during the movement mm -hmm. then versus the struggle of the workers that they're facing today, it's still one of the same. Can you recall for our listeners that first job you had that you really, and you talk about this in terms of having to fight, having to fight to even take a test to get a different position at the auto plant. Can you take, set the, the environment for our listeners so they know your history here, that first job? Yes, it was a Ford Motor Company at the Dallas Parts Distribution Center. And so I was initially hired to be a, a parts picker where we serviced the local dealerships and uh, advanced auto parts, the parts stores. Mm -hmm. And the, the wages that we started out, they weren't bad wages, but it was an environment that there were not a lot of women. It was white male dominated. And being able to see the uh, the maintenance program, they had an apprenticeship program and me having to fight to even get my name on the list to even try to get in the program. And all of the, you know, me talking to the uh, the maintenance manager, the union reps, trying to get someone to help me get my name on the list mm -hmm. as a woman and getting people people saying, you know, now, now that's really not a woman's job. And, wow. you know, we could probably find you something easier over in this department. And so just that whole, it's not really a woman's job. Mm -hmm. That, that in itself just kind of was like, I was livid. And I was, I, I said, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to take this test no matter what, but them not wanting to give me the books to study for the test, having to go out on my own and make those purchases so that I can have the material to even have a shot at even trying to pass the test. And I'm going to get to Eric in a moment, but Ms. Butler, I want to stay with you because then as you, during that moment, you're fighting for equality. And then later as you become active in the labor movement, I imagine you probably heard the same, some similar stories either from women or people of color about similar discriminatory whether intentional or not, because I know that's a whole nother subject, issues that folks were facing. This was not lost on you, their experiences that they told you. Absolutely. Absolutely. It wasn't lost. And so it's, again, it's the same fight. Mm -hmm. Even though it's a different decade, the fight is still the same. 
Erica, as you and your co-author are compiling these stories and you're doing your research, how often was the motivation for these organizers like Ms. Butler, how often were you hearing this, this sort of common thread about what, why they were passionate about this and why they were doing this type of work? Oh, it was really consistent, Rose. And um, I've had the honor and privilege of getting to work with Sancioni in some of these, um, in some of her later campaigns and seeing her uh, in action and just so much gratitude that she shared her time and her story with us in this book. But here's the thing, right? So one of the things that we, we push out is that, you know, we can't win um, organizing collective bargaining power without centering the fights against white supremacy and gender discrimination. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I really appreciate about Sancioni's story, there was a a part of her story where she talked about the victory of winning a bathroom, like Mm -hmm. a women's bathroom. Mm -hmm. And that that was, I think you said it kind of uh, flippantly, you were like, you know, that was our women's liberation movement. And I was cracking up because um, here we are in a movement now or in a moment now where you've got um, the Me Too movement, you've got Black Lives Matter. And just as much as these movements are about gender and race, uh, the base of these movements are workers. And where they're fighting for these things in many instances isn't just in society and in their communities, but uh, at their work sites. There was uh, one of the workers at the Bessemer plant in uh, Alabama who was fighting for Amazon, Big Mike. You know, he even said in a speech, this is our Black Lives Matter movement. They were Mm -hmm. motivated by uh, the murder of George Floyd. And and even when you look at the fact that the uh, arrest of of leaders in the Staten Island plant and how that led to the first union victory, you know, at, at Amazon, the first union election, that if as a society and as a movement, we ignore these motivating factors, we will continue to lose. Erica, I want to stay with you for a moment. You and, and you, you and your co-author, your, Sarita, you all have experience, not like you were just authors looking for something to write. This right. is at the core of what you all have been doing for a long time. Why this book now and why in the way that you present it to the reader with the stories of folks like Sangioni? Yeah, no, thanks for that. So, you know, we, that's right. So Sarita was the former director of Jobs with Justice. I am the the current director of Jobs with Justice, which is a a national network of community labor coalitions that seek to expand organizing and collective bargaining power. And there's a, there's a so what to this, which we have to keep reminding people. It's not just this idea of, of union rights. That's part of it. But, you know, I grew up in North Carolina. You don't just go door to door and say, hey, you have the the right to elect a senator. You say you have the you should have the ability to vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, and likewise, um, when it comes to, to forming unions, regular everyday people should have the ability to organize and collectively negotiate their conditions. And and that that actually is the foundation of democracy. And so there's a there's a little bit of this this question of so what, right? Like why now? In that. Um, uh, if we look back, you mentioned 1866 at the beginning of the mm-hmm. pro, uh, beginning of the program. If we look back to that time period uh, post the Civil War, the Great Radical Reconstruction, the 1870s, right? Like, I think that that was one of the last times as a country we were pointed in the direction of trying to build a multiracial democracy, albeit imperfect, but where we were trying to integrate population of formerly enslaved Black people, my mm-hmm. ancestors into a democratic society. And when you look at the constitutional amendments that happened around that time, you've got the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery and forced labor, the 14th, which started to define citizenship, the 15th, which started to define who could vote. Our movements have been trying to expand on those for the last 
150 years or more, and, and our opposition has been trying to roll them back, even to pre-Civil War interpretations. And so part of the so what for organizing collective bargaining power is that in this moment where the overwhelming majority of, of people recognize a crisis in our democracy, mm-hmm. that the only way to repair it, or even perhaps build it anew, is to include the economic relationships that also need to be democratized, whether it's employment or, or other ones. Eric, I want to I want to touch on that for a moment because you mentioned obviously post Civil War and, and Ms. Butler. When you think about labor organizing in the South and then how it's done in the North and the challenges and the barriers, there are some similarities, but there are also some stark differences. As someone working organizing working in the South here. Racism, I and, and I'm not to say that there wasn't racism of North, but I'm curious and get your take on the challenges as it relates to race, trying to be an organizer here in the South, just within the labor movement. And did you experience that? Absolutely. Uh, the, the challenge is, it's, it's, a, it's a stigma. Southern people think and were brought up in a way Northern people, I think, had a little bit more uh, freedom, flexibilities, per se. And when a person from the North comes to the South to organize, my, my message to that person is you're going to have to de-roll and put yourself in the worker's shoes who they don't have a voice or say they are just at the mercy of the company. Mm-hmm. And so they, Southern people know when you have this persnickety attitude and looking down on them. So I think the key to more victories in the South is to ensure that you have Southern folks who have the Southern twang that can relate to those workers to where they don't feel, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I feel like uh, they're, I'm intimidated a little bit by them. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's a part of the key to having some, some successes in this in this area. Ms. Bell, are we seeing though more women becoming involved as as leaders, as activists in the labor movement? Are you seeing that? Oh yeah, I was I was very surprised. I had more women that stepped up and was out front carrying the torch. The men were just so afraid when they're in a room, they try to act like they can do all these things. But when it came to being, the, you know, standing out and being the voice at the facility, the women stepped up in a mighty way. And I'm very proud of working with the women that I've had an opportunity to work with because they show so much courage. Eric, I want to come back to you for a moment because we've profiled here on this seg- on this on this show program. We've talked about efforts with the Apple stores and of course with Starbucks and we all know then of course we all know about Amazon. So we're seeing even a younger generation of folks. And cause I think the, the labor, the union organizers that we interviewed, I think for Starbucks might've been 21 or 22. So when you see that this is a, young, a younger generation also taking lessons from folks like Ms. Butler and also mm-hmm. using the power of employees but also, but look, when you go up against some of the big the big names here, you're talking about Apple, you know, Starbucks, Amazon. What are you noticing about a newer generation of activists, organizers, labor organizers and activists? Is there a common thread that you're noticing with this particular generation? Yeah. And it's exciting. So I think, you know, certainly at Starbucks, we, we're seeing like younger uh, workers and, and many who are coming up in, I guess, Gen Z or millennials. Uh, and um, but 
it's not just them. I mean, workers from from many different age groups are kind of standing up to say enough is enough. And what we're seeing is that a lot of the uh, inequities and uh, really tough conditions that people operated in were just exposed in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so, you know, you add the pressures of potentially getting sick with this idea that we're supposed to be, you know, these workers are supposed to be essential, Mm -hmm. but not actually being treated essential as essential uh, per people in the economy. You know, you end up with a situation that 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 turns into an exploding time bomb, a long overdue moment where people are like, I'm not going to do this anymore. And I think that uh, for me, I'm really excited about it for a couple of reasons. Um, First things first is like, you know, one of the big premises in our book is that uh, we need to expand the way we think about organizing collective bargaining Mm -hmm. and negotiating based on the way employment and economic relationships work today. And, you know, Amazon, Apple, Starbucks, these global brands didn't exist in 1935 when the National Labor Relations Act was passed. And so we really need to start thinking about like how we would set up negotiations in a new context. You talk about the seven pillars of bargaining for the common good. Ms. Butler, Mm -hmm. I want to bring you back in the conversation. When you think back to when you first started and negotiating for your, your, you know, or collective bargaining, what have you learned that you wouldn't, you definitely wouldn't do then if you knew now what were you what you know now you wouldn't have done back then uh that's i mean just so many things just uh it's really all about the approach when when you're dealing with the company and the ass that we have and just i feel like you got to be willing you can't have all of these outlandish wishes and it taking it to the core of what's in the best interest of the workers. We know mm-hmm. they care about the health, their health and safety while they're on the job. Everybody's entitled to health care. You know, these are the things that we've got to stay at the table and keep pushing for because these companies make billions of dollars. They don't want to share it with the people. And so we got, that's what we need to keep our foot on. There is a bullet point in here where you all talk about engaging community allies as partners in issues and development in the bargaining campaign. Erica, take that a little further. Uh, who are some of the, I mean, often we hear about some of the, 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 I guess the common, the NAACP or the ACLU. We hear about some common organization, but when you talk about engage the community, what are you all talking about here? Yeah. I mean, in some ways it's not even that complicated. Uh, so, so here's the big surprise reveal um, that everyone actually knew, which is that workers are whole people. And when you look at an individual at a work site, they, you can identify what church they go to, what uh, soccer team their kids or grandkids play for, you know, like you can identify whole people. And so, you know, one of the examples of the bargaining for the common good strategy, which is really just like a modern version of social movement unionism, which, mm-hmm. you know, the, the auto workers back in the 30s tried this strategy as well. They just didn't call it that. But they tried to negotiate over the price of cars in addition to the wages because Mm -hmm. people who made them should be able to afford to buy them. And uh, that was radical and ended up uh, getting curbed to where they could, no, you just focus on wages. Well, you know, workers today are trying to push back on that. And the the example we give in the book is with the uh, teachers in the Twin Cities in, in Minnesota, where they didn't just bring parents in or students in as allies once they had already figured out what they were negotiating over, they worked with them 
over the course of many years, building a set of uh, issues that they wanted to talk about, issues that the parents felt invested in. And so when they began to have trouble at the table in negotiations, it wasn't hard to make an ask of parents to support them, even though it was one of the first big blizzards of that year. It wasn't hard to make an ask of parents to to come out with them on the picket lines because they had skin in the game. They had something to to win out of it as well. Miss Butler, are there golden nuggets that you offer to this new generation of, of labor activists and organizers that you stress that they should know? Stay true to who they are and always be relatable. People can pick up on when you're not being real or not. Just be yourself. And that's what's going to draw people in and get them to trust you because they see that you are real. And you have to be open to say, hey, I got kids. I've been in the workforce as well. So I kind of understand your struggle. So be relatable. Erica, you you all in this book that some I had a friend of mine said this book was like a, a, a how to a hand guide for this this newer generation who should read this book. Oh, I hope everybody. We tried to write it like a choose your own adventure, right? So if you have no experience whatsoever with unions or the labor movement, uh, then you can read part one and get completely caught up. And if you're trying to do something new or you you are operating in a context or at a company or even in a living situation that's different than what might have existed before, then part two is going to be the section where you see what other working people have done. And then, of course, part three really starts to project into the future. You know, we've heard a lot in the past few years about the future of work and mm-hmm. the future of workers. And my co-author, Sarita Gupta, has done a lot of writing and thinking on this. But to really not think about it as something that is inevitable and is going to happen to us, but to think about it as something that we need to be in relationship with and being a part of governing over how it how it plays out. Now, I want to ask both of you this before we, we let you go. I'm curious to get your thoughts on how the pandemic, and we touched on a little bit how the pandemic has sort of pulled the curtain back on not only how we all work in this nation, but some of the environments and under the conditions and what it says about what needs to change and what lessons are going to be learned from this pandemic. So, Ms. Butler, I'll start with you as it relates to the future of workers' health and safety. What have you? What do you hope people take away from what the pandemic has revealed? I, I, I love that the pandemic happened in this regard because there, this is the worker rising movement that you see right now with the Amazons and the Apple, the, the, the essential workers. Uh, it's like some, you sometimes you don't really realize that you are being oppressed at work, but the pandemic, it, it pulled the shade off of that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I love what's happening. I, I mean, I'm just proud of these young people because they're advocating for themselves and their co-workers. And I, I see that this movement is not going to stop. It's going to continue to progress. Well, let me ask you this, Ms. Butler. How do you define then those, is it the bigger picture with those small victories? And is it always, you should have a, a big end game in terms of what you all want, what workers want. Can you, is there satisfaction in these small victories along the way? I mean, you talked about just getting a bathroom. Obviously, hopefully we're beyond that, but just a bigger picture. How should organizers now view, you know, success or effectiveness and what they're doing? I think the small victories matter. We have to continue to uplift the small victories when we're working on these huge campaigns so that those folks can see it's attainable. Mm -hmm. This group of people were able to be successful and you can, too, if you guys stick together and just stay with it. 
Erica, in terms of the pandemic, I'll give you the last word. Yeah, look, there is a study that came out of Connecticut that showed that at assisted living facilities where seniors were were in care, that there were 30% less COVID deaths where those facilities had union representation. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about a, a job force that is majority black women. So if that doesn't convince you that having a union is actually good for all of us, that being able to collectively negotiate conditions and prepare for the crisis before it comes is better for all of us. I'm not sure what will, that this is actually fundamental to democracy. And I wanna just wrap with like something that also touches on one of your earlier questions, Rose, which is, which is this question of race, right? Mm-hmm. Race and gender. Right? The majority of black people in this country still live in the South. And so it, it's not surprising that that's where some of the most repressive laws are. That is that is just stating a, a fact and that the rise of the industry of union busting that began to be trained and developed in various business schools happened in the 1970s when more women and particularly women of color were joining the job force. And so when we're talking about trying to combat this and get back to this aspiration, this promise of building a multiracial democracy, it's not just a matter of doing what's morally right mm-hmm. to confront gender discrimination and race, it's a matter of strategy. It's a matter of winning. It's a matter of not doing so will ultimately guarantee our defeat. And so we don't build this power and we don't build democracy by by just organizing people who already have access. Uh, We have to build it with people who don't have access, maybe never had access and have the imagination to build something new, like the workers that you described at Starbucks and Mm -hmm. Trader Joe's and Apple. And that the so what of all of this is both so that we can build a democracy that really is worth fighting for. And God forbid, as my co-author often says, uh, so that we can find dignity and joy in our everyday lives. The book is titled The Future We Need, Organizing for a Better Democracy in the 21st Century, co-authored by Erica Smiley and Sarita Gupta. Labor organizer and activist Sancioni Butler is featured. Miss Butler, Erica, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate a good conversation. It's a good book. Thank you, Rose. Thank you, Rose. closer look will return in just a moment want to let you know in case you missed it yesterday michael p boggs was sworn in as georgia's new chief justice boggs known for his criminal justice reform advocacy is replacing former justice david namius who announced his plans to step down in February, and Boggs was appointed to the Supreme Court back in 2016 by former Governor Nathan Deal. He previously served on the State Court of Appeals as a Superior Court judge in Waycross, as well as a member of the Georgia General Assembly. And also, Justice Nails Peterson was sworn in as the court's presiding justice, and he will serve as the Chief Justice at the conclusion of Boggs' term. We're back in a moment. With a decision on Georgia's state abortion law expected within the month, advocates on either side of the issue are rallying their base, but also trying to find ways to best help women in the state. Former Planned Parenthood CEO Stacy Fox and Georgia Life Alliance Leadership Director Elizabeth Reed joined Political Breakfast to discuss how their supporters are receiving the news and how they see the new law playing out in Georgia. That and more on this week's episode of Political Breakfast, available now on wabe.org or wherever you get your podcasts.
And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. According to the National Shooting Sports Foundation, that's a firearms trade association, last year, 90% of gun retailers reported a general increase of black customers. And that also within that group, 87% increase among black women purchasing firearms. Now, we should note this is an estimate. But at least one researcher, Deborah Ezreal, a public health researcher from Harvard, revealed these stats based on a national survey taken during the pandemic. She notes overall 10 percent of gun owners were black and 37 percent were women. Now, among those, quote, respondents who said they purchased a firearm for the first time between January 2019 and April 2021, some 21 percent were black and of that 48 percent were women. Now, as to the reasons for this increase, well, that surely depends on whom you ask. But let's take all this further. I'm joined now by Atlanta-based Marshall Davis, owner, firearm instructor of My Sister's Keeper Defense. And we should note, Marshall Davis also holds several firearm safety certifications and instructor licenses. Marshall, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Hi, thanks for having me. I want to begin here because in reading a little bit about you, you write, quote, I started my sister's keeper defense in 2016 because I noticed a lack of representation in the gun community. I would see women coming into the range where I worked and feel extremely uncomfortable while their significant other attempted to teach them about firearms. Sometimes it's hard to believe you can do something until you see someone who looks like you in that position, close quote. I want to ask you, what did you commonly see being taught that probably was way, way wrong? or just simply not right? (laughs) I saw the misuse of firearms. I saw improper grips. I saw people being forced to learn how to use firearms when they didn't consent to want to shoot or go to the range. I've had women surprised with my classes by their significant others. And I think having all that pressure and not knowing what to expect and being put in a situation that you didn't consent to be in, I think that all affects people's perspective of learning about firearms. When you say when people didn't uh, consent to be in, you mean some folks were just there saying, look, you have to learn how to do this when you when you knew you knew just and observing that 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 person didn't want to even be there. Absolutely. It happens very frequently. There will be a husband or parent who wants their child or their significant other to learn about firearms and they'll just blindly sign them up for a class or bring them to the range without their knowledge or consent and then expect them to want to learn. And obviously you are saying that is a definite no-no. Don't do that. Absolutely. Don't do that. Well, when you hear those statistics that I mentioned coming into, does it line up, though, with what you are seeing in terms of for those women and black women who want to be (laughs) at the gun range or who want to learn? Are you seeing an increase in more women, women of color? Absolutely. I've seen an increase since 2020 in the amount of students reaching out for classes and the amount of students who are bringing their own firearms to the class. I see a lot more interest in learning about firearms through my social media pages. And there's just this big boom of black gun ownership. What are you hearing, Marshall, when you talk to women? Do you do you ask, say, hey, I'm curious, um, why do you want to learn to to shoot? Why are you now purchasing a firearm and you want to learn safety and all that. What do you hear? A lot of my students are survivors of sexual sexual assault and domestic violence, as am I. And they will see one of my posts or see a video and then it makes them realize, hey, I can do that too. So they're just newly inspired. And then the other half of women are just purely afraid of the changing political climate in this country and the mass shootings we've seen and the crime here in Atlanta, they Mm -hmm. see a lot of crime and they want to be able to protect themselves. 
Is there a, a and this is because you are the expert here, is there a age that you recommend or does it really de- depend on the individual you, for folks to maybe even give sort of a self-assessment in terms of whether or not they really want to, want purchase a firearm, but also in taking in purchasing a firearm and then taking the, the necessary safety and instruction classes. Is there a self-assessment you think people need to take themselves through? Absolutely. I think it's a mental, emotional, spiritual decision. You have to ask yourself, am I mentally, emotionally, and spiritually prepared to take a life in defense of my own? And if that answer is no, then gun ownership is not for you, in my opinion, and that is okay. It is okay to decide that you're not ready for the responsibility of being um, in control, basically, of your safety and everyone else's safety around you. It's a big job. It's a big task. And it's okay if you decide it's not for you. Marshall, have you ever tried to talk someone out of not or saying maybe now is maybe not the time for you to think about purchasing or taking lessons? And and I ask that for a reason. Absolutely. I've had some women who are newly fresh out of a traumatic experience and I haven't gone through it. I know exactly how that feels, but I caution them that you don't want to make an emotional decision Mm -hmm. when you're deciding to buy and carry a firearm. You want to make an informed decision. And if mentally you're not there when you're practicing, then it's okay. Hey, we'll set the firearm down. We'll go out of the range. Let's try again later. Maybe after you sought some help or maybe after you've attended therapy sessions so that you can kind of manage your emotions to be able to focus on what you're learning. You've made it clear that you are a self-defense advocate, not necessarily a Second Amendment rights advocate. And I know some of our listeners are probably wondering, well, what's the difference in that? So for me, the difference is that I believe my right to self-defense came from my creator. So I was born with this right. It supersedes all politics. It supersedes the Constitution. It supersedes all laws. And when I make that clear you know, line, that definition, people realize that all gun owners are not the same. When you hear that someone's a gun owner, you automatically think they're conservative, they're uh, you know, right-leaning, they're Republican, you automatically think these things. So I make note to, to specify that there is a difference and I don't fall in any of those other categories, but I also believe in my right to self-defense. In that quote that I read coming into this segment that you actually wrote about why you decided to do this, the passion behind this, when you say, Sometimes it's hard to believe you can do something until you see someone who looks like you in that position and you as a you identify as a black woman, obviously. So you being in that position, this helps break maybe just even the ice, so to speak, with the women who come in, who take your classes because they see someone that looks like them who's going to be their instructor. And tragically, who also may be able to identify with the past experience that they've that they've gone through as well. Absolutely. And I think it's so important to see that because in the media in movies and TV and news, of course, when we see black gun owners, it's usually a negative stereotype associated with that gun owner. They're usually a criminal or they're playing the character of a thug. And I want it to be a change. I want it to show that black people, skin folk have been carrying and using firearms for their self-defense for years. This is not new. It's just now being widely accepted. Whereas before it was a taboo subject. If you just joined us, I am in conversation with Marshall Davis. She is Atlanta based. She's the owner and firearm instructor of my sister's keeper defense. 
And Ms. Davis holds several firearm safety certifications and instructor license. We're having this conversation because we've seen the reports that there's been a tremendous increase in gun ownership, especially among black women. Marcel, do you also, I've been reading that this also could be because of 2020 and then the murder of George Floyd and obviously rising crime as well. People talk about that also in terms of wanting to protect themselves because they feel like they need to protect themselves, not against necessarily criminals, but just other folks who may be out to harm black people. Absolutely. A lot of people feel that they may be targeted and they feel that because of their skin color that they can't take off and they can't hide, they may be a victim of some sort of violence. So in 2020, we saw a lot of people come sign up for the classes big based off of fear mostly. Um, But then also in 2020, because of COVID, a lot of calls to law enforcement weren't being answered or it would be a longer wait time to actually get a law enforcement officer. So people started realizing, oh no, I have to be my own protector. Mm -hmm. No one is coming to save me. Take me through those first moments of the class. You've got folks in there who are first time either wanting to purchase a firearm, first time first time even picking up a firearm, what do you say to them? I always start with my introduction and let everyone know my background. I have a military background. I'm a survivor myself. And I also let them know that this is a no pressure class. I let them know that I am not going to force them to do anything they don't want to do. I let them know that it is okay in this safe space to have an emotional reaction or response to shooting the firearm. And I also let them know that we are going to cover everything firearm related in the classroom and handle training pistols, not real firearms, before we even go into the range. So they're well prepared and they know what to expect. I want to ask you this. And actually, I have a listener that sent this uh, question in too. What are some of the mistakes folks make when they want to get that first firearm? Because look, y'all don't need a bazooka or whatever. You know, you don't (laughs) know of. So what what are some of the mistakes people make when they want to purchase that, that first firearm? The biggest mistake people make is purchasing firearms without first taking a class and not just a class. You need to take several classes to know that you've mastered those fundamentals. If you're purchasing a firearm without ever shooting it or without ever taking a class, it would be like buying a car before you know how to drive. Right. You're Mm -hmm. only going to hurt yourself because you don't know what you're doing. So I recommend that you take classes and then also understand it's an investment into your life. Firearms are expensive, ammunition is expensive, and firearms classes can be expensive. So budget out the the finances you're going to need to continue to practice after you've purchased the firearm. It's not just a one-and-done class. When you think back to the first class that you taught and, and now, how much have you changed in your, or have you at all changed in terms of your approach or delivery? How would you assess that? My I would say my delivery is the same. In 2017, when I started teaching my classes, I wanted to make sure I had a fun class. We can laugh, but then, you know, everyone knows that there's a serious moment here. And I want to make sure everyone's calm and relaxed. It's very approachable. I'm not wearing tactical gear. I'm usually in jeans and sneakers mirroring my students that are in front of me. And I want to make sure that everyone is comfortable and everyone's smiling and we're having a good time while also learning a very sensitive subject. Of course, you know, we all know the the mass shootings here. And, of course, whenever that, that happens, and they seem to be happening, obviously more frequent now than even in past years. And, of course, comes up about what sensible gun legislation looks like. And this is just through your viewpoint. 
Mm-hmm. What does that look like? What should it look like? I mean, look, folks can argue all day about whether or not you need an AR-15 or you you need this. But I'm curious when you have these conversations or do you have these conversations with folks about what sensible gun legislation should look like? What do you think that that entails? I believe that what we need to focus on is not the microwave short quick fix, because there is no quick fix to this issue. There is no one law that's going to fix the issue. We really have to look at the, the culprit behind the increase of mass shootings and the culprit really boils down to, and I know, I know everyone hates when we say this, but it, it comes down to the mental health of the citizens in the United States. Why is there such a lack of concern for the lives of others? And I think that it starts in childhood. It starts when we talk about socioeconomic issues, when we talk about parents who are being now being forced to bring children into the world and the life that child is going to lead and how they're going to grow up and the resources they have. I mean, it goes down to even the music programs, right? And, and art programs in school, these things, all of these things come together to create this issue that we have now where we have a society of people who are mentally unwell. Do you think then you think there should be more background checks? Do you think there should be an age limit to some of these weapons, though? I mean, AR-15, as of right now, I believe in most states, you can be 18 and just order one. We have a gun manufacturer here in Georgia, you can go online mm-hmm. and, and order an AR-15 or any other assault rifle and have it delivered to your home. That's actually not true. And that's part of what I like to do is I like to dispel myths. There's a lot of false information being put out about the purchase of firearms and the age and what is the background check entail. So first, you cannot ever legally purchase any firearm and have it delivered to your home. Okay. The process to purchase a firearm, if you were to buy it online, would be you submit your payment. That firearm has to be transferred to an authorized firearm dealer called okay. an FFL. All right. So that firearm goes from the manufacturer to that dealer. When you get to that dealer, you have to, in Georgia, either present your Georgia weapons carry license, which means you've had a background check run, you've been fingerprinted, and you've been photographed. If you don't have that Georgia weapons carry license, you will have to have a background check run by NICS and also fill out an ATF form 4473. So you mentioned purchasing legally, mm-hmm. which is key here, because often, as you Absolutely. know, too, that, that there are other ways of purchasing a firearm that are, are not legal. So would you have this? So I asked you a question. You corrected me. You said I was incorrect. And I'm glad you did that. And we will double check that. Not that we don't believe you, but as journalists, we should do mm-hmm. that. So our apologies Absolutely. if we were wrong with that. Um when you have those conversations with people about then the legal and proper way to purchase a gun, does that also mm-hmm. ease some of their the, the tension or the concerns they have about being a homeowner or being a, a, a gun owner in terms of the process? Yes. Right. The process, it, the way it's designed currently works, right? Because if you purchase a firearm illegally, that's already illegal, Right. If you lie on your ATF form 4473, it's a federal document, that's also illegal, right? So if you were to, me, responsible gun owner, purchase a firearm and then give it to someone who's not authorized to have firearms, that's also illegal. Well, let me ask you this, though. Do you think if there were some stricter provisions on who could purchase or how to purchase an assault rifle, that that could 
be part of the solution to to some of these mass shootings? Not necessarily. When we Why? look at a lot of the recent so stricter in what way? What specifically would be more strict? With you understanding that the current process you're not necessarily aware of. So what in your opinion isn't currently Well, if we if we're talking about cuz cuz anyone whether you're even if you're well over the age of 18, you can you can still purchase an AR-15. That's all I'm saying. Those mm-hmm. assault rifles. Do you think if there was legislation or, or provisions that were stricter in terms of maybe a longer wait time or, or may, maybe a, a stronger background checks for individuals who want to purchase hot assault rifles, which do a lot of damage? You, you and I both know that. Do you think any of that could help in, in these mass shootings? Because that seems to be that seems to be the weapon, a common weapon, though, correct? It is. It is a tool that bad people have used to do bad things. But let's say this person who is 18 years old passes their background check Mm -hmm. and they are mentally unwell, which is one of the questions that's asked on the ATF form 4473. And they lie on that form and they legally buy that firearm and leave with that firearm and do bad things. Mm -hmm. The process itself worked. They had to run a background check. They had to answer those questions. You know, they had to do the things necessary in order to purchase the firearm. The the concern or maybe the solution or an idea Mm -hmm. could be if there was free access to therapy, right? Free access to mental mental health programs starting from elementary school because that is what is needed and the status status of people's mental health changes right mm-hmm. so let's say for example this is something I've seen pr- proposed you have to before you buy your firearm speak with a therapist right and that therapist has to say all right this person is mentally well well enough to purchase a firearm right that day. Mm-hmm. Right. That day they're mentally well. And then next week, their whole life falls apart and the status of their mental health has changed. Well, that therapy session doesn't necessarily prevent anything. Right. Because it's ever changing. So unfortunately, I don't think there is a way to institute the mental health check or um, more than what's already instituted. The mental health check because there are biases and then things change. You see folks like yourselves who are certified. And folks mm-hmm. who have organizations who are working with specific groups, you see folks like yourself being the being a part of a solution that maybe they should invite right. you all more into the conversation. Does that need to happen? And that's what I've tried. Absolutely. I would love to talk to people who believe who would consider themselves anti-gun. I love having those conversations. One, because I want to dispel the myths. Unless you've actually gone through the process to purchase a firearm legally, a lot of people just don't know. And I have students come in and say, oh, I thought it was this, or I thought the law said that, and I give them the actual facts. So that's starting one. We can't find a solution until we're all on the same page and we know what's currently in place. And then secondly, having training available for those who are currently firearm owners, making Mm -hmm. sure that they know about proper storage, right? Children are getting access to firearms and hurting themselves Mm -hmm. and others. Talk about continuous training. Find some way to make it inexpensive or even free for people who own firearms. Let me ask you this before we let you go, because recently here in Georgia, as you know, Governor Kemp signed that bill, which allows Mm -hmm. permitless carry of a concealed handgun in public. What are your thoughts on that? I just think we need more training. I think whether you decide to carry a firearm open or concealed, training has to be pushed. I wish our politicians talked more about training and education, because honestly, that's what it boils down to. If I'm a legal gun owner. And I've never hurt anyone ever, and I never plan to, and I carry that firearm. It doesn't matter. I need to have that training to back up um, the law and my rights to defend myself. 
I have a listener real quick that has a question, wants to know through your lens. She didn't say through your lens, but the question is, what is the purpose of owning an assault rifle? That's a great question, actually. Um, so AR-15s, first, the term assault rifle, this is splitting hairs. Um, it's incorrect. AR actually stands for Armalite Rifles. That's the company that first designed that platform mm-hmm. um, for rifles. When we think about, let's think about the last few years being skin folk in this country and we say, our lives haven't mattered, right? We have to march and say Mm -hmm. our lives do matter. We have to tell them, right, that there are things that we're not getting in this country or we fear for our lives. And then we think about the threats to us. Who are our threats? Who are we thinking about, right? We're thinking about these supremacy groups who are coming to hurt us, right? I have to think about what my threat is gonna have. Mm -hmm. So if my threat, if my biggest fear is that this group of armed people, this militia is gonna come into my neighborhood to hurt me, what type of firearm are they using? they're going to come with their rifles. So I'm not going to bring a gun to an AR fight, so right? I want to have equal or greater force. You're saying people should have the right to purchase a high-power weapon if they feel like that's what someone on the, that's coming from them may have. That's pretty much what you're saying? To defend myself. Yeah. If I'm going to defend myself against those groups, I want to have at least what they have so I can defend myself properly. Marshall Davis, owner, firearm instructor of My Sister's Keeper Defense, also licensed in a lot of home defense fundamentals certified instructor so for those that have been emailing me saying is she qualified y'all don't do this anybody else stop doing it to her (laughs) okay marshall thank you so much for taking the time i really appreciate it good conversation thank you thank you for having me And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel. Our summer intern is Lennox Johnson. Our regular engineer is Kevin Rinker, but Daniel, Daniel, Daniel was at the helm today, so we appreciate that. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other, so send me an email, rose at wabe.org, which I'll have already started to do. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m., as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE Politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE Politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.